And welcome to Ask an Atheist with Sam Mulvey. My name is Becky. Sam continues to keep busy with community radio work for KTQALP. It is one of Tacoma's very own non-commercial community radio stations that is on the cusp of having a real physical broadcast studio. So Sam is quite busy with that. And so that's why it is I behind the mic today in Sam's stead, bringing you programming related to atheism, skepticism, the separation of church and state, well, and issues of interest to secular humanists and science-minded individuals. You can always call us at Ask an Atheist at 844-SKEPTIC. That's 844-753-7842. That's toll-free nationwide. Or email us at questions at atheist.radio. And you can interact with us on Facebook or Twitter at Ask an Atheist WA. And you can find all episodes of Ask an Atheist going back an entire decade online at atheist.radio. Now, amidst the challenges of this year, and there have been many, it's been a little daunting to keep up on our typical production schedule. And we aren't the only talk show that has faced this. So we thought, why not collaborate to give us a little bit of a kick in the pants and to get some fresh voices and perspective. So back in mid-September, I had the privilege to talk with Tucker Drake. He is host of Atheist in the Trailer Park podcast. And Tucker was kind enough to permit this urban-dwelling West Coast atheist into the proverbial trailer park. You can hear Tucker's edition of our conversation by searching for Atheist in the Trailer Park wherever you get your podcasts. And you can interact with Tucker on social media at Trailer Park Atheist. But what I've got for you today is my production of our conversation. So without further ado, please enjoy today's crossover show of, I guess I'll call it uh, Ask a Trailer Park Atheist. Howdy. Hello. I'm glad we could connect. Since you're a teacher, let me ask you how that's going out there. Oh, man. It is rough. <laughs> um, but we are persevering like crazy. Um, and since we started last week and the Pacific Northwest, actually the whole entire West Coast, is experiencing lots of fires and whatnot, um, we had... Uh, at least a handful of our colleagues that were either under evacuation watch or had no power or were evacuated. So on the very first day of school, I was subbing in for a colleague saying, I'm so super excited that you guys get Mr. Blah, blah, blah for your teacher because he's way hecka cooler than I am. And you guys are going <laughs> to be so lucky. And um, in between that, I'm doing interpreting Spanish phone calls for families that can't connect um, or figure out what's going on because... Uh, we have one of the most culturally and linguistically diverse school districts in the nation. And so um, at any given point in like their schooling career, 40% of our kids will have received English learner services. And we have over 100 different languages in our district. So um, Ouch. it was a big uh, adjustment for it was <laughs> a, a very big like first day for families and for staff. And because we are 100% remote and it is a lot. It is a lot for everyone. Yeah, well, at least you're still remote. Here, they've decided to send them all back to school. They were half remote, and, they, you know, they 
they physically go to school two days a week, and then they'd be remote the rest of the time. And then, and I guess last week after everybody got back from the holiday, they said that's when we're opening the schools back up. And I'm just like, no. <laughs> Oh, don't do that. It's a real rough decision. And, you know, I'm grateful that in Washington, we have guidance that is all but mandatory from the state that says, hey, here are the ranges that your new case numbers per 100,000 residents have to be at in order to think about hybrid schooling, you know, that two days on, two days off and whatnot for the elementary school kids. Um, so as a high school teacher and instructional coach, I'm I'm actually putting money on not coming back in person at the high school level in our district for the year, just based on what the state guidelines are for us. And again, we're like in the north and in the west. And so like we didn't start until right after Labor Day. So you guys in in the south and in other warmer regions that have more daylight and whatnot um, have been in school for two, three, four weeks by the time that we are just starting I cannot even imagine coming back full time right now. To some extent, it's looking like some of the science is showing that hybrid is just as bad as everyone there all at once um, because you're still getting all of the kids and bodies and people circulating through and exposing, you know, and, and encountering everyone all at once. Yeah, well, we've got 17% of our hospital beds available. So <laughs> that's, that's how badly we're hit. And that's the state level. That's not my county level. Mm. Well, and how many of those hospital beds are not religiously governed? That's our <laughs> our other question uh, we always keep an eye on in Washington State, where so many of us, so many of our hospitals are in the Catholic healthcare system. A lot of ours are, and in fact, probably the best known hospital people don't realize is uh, religiously governed, and that's Vanderbilt. Ooh, but it's really tough for healthcare all over the country. And yeah. whether you're talking about COVID or whether you're talking about, you know, reproductive rights or end of life care or anything like that, it's it's a big thing to keep on our radar uh, to see whether people can make those decisions and have full access to services without someone's religious edicts or dictates getting in the way. And that's the big problem with the Catholic hospitals is that you have a, a, a conference of bishops who are governing what healthcare options and procedures are to be available to those who access their hospital, which seems incredibly backwards to me. Right, right. And I know somebody one time that I was having that discussion, they're like, well, that's why I picked where I live, because the hospital here is, you know, it's not a Catholic-run ran hospital. And I'm like, but what if you're on vacation and you get sick or injured? You don't have a choice. <laughs> you know, they're going to take you to whichever hospital's closest uh, or is in your insurance network. And if that hospital, you know, is Catholic controlled, well, you may not get what you need or what you want. Absolutely. And regardless of whether uh, you can go on vacation or not, what about the folks that don't even have the bandwidth or capacity to choose where they're living based on financial resources or where the specific jobs are available to you? And then if you can choose where you're living and what jobs are available to you, I know for a while I only had two options for health insurance. And one of them, if I had uh, uh, become pregnant, the only hospitals within the network are the are the Catholic hospitals. 
And those are the real <laughs> impacts that are that are affecting families. I just saw a cartoon the other day. John Somebody, uh, who's a cartoonist, and he has this cartoon of you know, figure at a grave being upset because their youngest child died, and there's a religious figure next to him, and uh, you know the religious figure says, "Well, you know, it's all your child's death was all part of God's plan." And the grieving parent says, "What kind of plan involves dead children?" The religious figure says, well, you know, you got to, if you want to make an omelet, you got to break some eggs. Oh, goodness. Who's eating this omelet? <laughs> well, that's what the, uh, that's what the parents said. I don't think I want to eat this omelet. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> and the religious leader goes, well, how about some Tabasco sauce? That makes everything better. Even if I did believe that there was a supernatural deity, and if there was evidence presented to me that the Christian God was was a uh, a true fact, I would say that that particular entity is not deserving of worship in any way whatsoever. Yeah, I, I agree completely, because just of all the horrible crap that has to be part of their plan. Precisely. You know. So, well, um, I'm happy to be on the show and connecting with you today, Tucker. Um, okay. And uh, uh, I guess I, I, I should say that I am from perhaps what is most opposite of a trailer park <laughs> 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 on the on the West Coast in an urban corridor corridor in a hundred year old uh, unit of a duplex um, <laughs> in the middle of a city uh, on the water. So. That's me, yeah, but that's... I'm I'm happy to be a guest in the trailer park today. I love old houses, um, but uh, you know this is what I can afford. So hey, funny enough, this is what we can afford too. <laughs> My rent on this beer can is less than I would pay. Well, I own the the beer can, but I rent a lot, and that rent is less than what I would pay for any apartment in this town. Population of forty thousand. So it is one of those really tough things that's affecting. You know, not only what used to be, you know, that absurd rent in the cities, uh, San Francisco and New York are completely unaffordable. Mm, there's most places around the country where you have the cost of housing outpacing the ability for the housed people to afford. All of the models still say when you go to any kind of budget counseling or you have one of those budgetary, you know, high school business classes, they say, you know, count on one third of your income going to your housing expenses. And that's just not a realistic figure anymore for the bulk of, of Americans to have one third because you're not going to find uh, housing um, that will allow you to only spend one third on on your rent and utilities and whatnot. Or you're not going to find a job that will give you <laughs> the salary that you need in order to only spend one third on your housing and utility needs. I've lived here. 20 years now when I moved in I was making 1250 an hour and my trailer note was like $300 a month and my lot rent was $260 a month I paid the trailer off and my lot rent has gone up to 360 a month and my income has only increased to uh, $19 an hour, barely, because I don't get 40 hours a week right now, thanks to the pandemic. And 
you know, most of the jobs in town only pay twelve, thirteen dollars an hour at at most. So I'm really lucky. But it's like, you know, even though I'm no longer paying f- the mortgage note on this place, I don't have as much money as I had when I moved in here because everything else has gone up. It is definitely a predicament that a lot of us are are finding ourselves in. I think, and yeah, it's one of the reasons that. After starting my career in Arizona, I said, I, I got to get out of here. It's one of those reasons that I said I got to get out of Arizona and uh, and come to, to a state where teachers are a little bit better paid. Um, and uh, plus, <laughs> I can teach in a state where neither the students nor the subject of my, of my instruction were deemed illegal by the state. And I couldn't say the same in Arizona, where both the students I taught and the subjects I taught were deemed illegal by either the local municipalities, the school boards, or the states. Uh, that's just uh, uh, insane. <laughs> One would um, concur generally if you look rationally at a lot of the facts. But there's research on language acquisition and when uh, the public uses language as a proxy for racism to say, no, we don't want to teach bilingual ed and we don't want to have... Uh, uh, Spanish speakers be able to learn their own language in the schools. Uh, we're going to go from a purely deficit model and make everyone Merkin that is basing a public policy decision that has tons of research and information behind it on purely emotional standards. And that was what was happening in Arizona around the time that I decided to get myself out of there <laughs> and up here to Washington. I can understand. Um, and you were lucky enough to be able to do that because... Uh... I certainly can't afford to get out of this state, <laughs> which I would gl- gladly do if I could. I mean, because I'm a blue person in a blood red state. Shall we dig into some of the some of the stories that piqued our interest this week? Okay. COVID has thrown wrenches into things. Yeah, yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> believe me, I know. I work in a meat processing facility, so that's uh, been real interesting. It is one of the things that has come up in the news a lot of whether there are sufficient protections uh, for individuals in meat processing and agricultural plants and orchards and farms. Have you been feeling particularly safe in the operations of your job? Oh, well, yeah. Um, I've ranted about it in the past on the show. When they first started doing the lockdowns and I didn't think that we were doing a lot, uh, but they have greatly improved things, and we're a uh, unionized facility, so I'm sure that had an awful lot to do with how they fix things. Um, And in fact, some ways they've gone over and above what I expected them to do, uh, or even thought would be necessary to do, so I am grateful for that. Like, we have... You know, one of the things that that shocked me is we have one of those time clocks. Well, the first time clock we had when I started there was you punched in your code, you know, your employee number and stuck your fingerprint on the reader and it clocked you in, which I guess that's a thing now. This is the first place I've ever worked at where you didn't have a badge or a time card. We're in the future, Tucker. (laughs) uh, Apparently so. And... They uh, put hand sanitizer beside the time clock, so, you know, you stick your hand underneath it, and it squirts hand sanitizer on it, and you sanitize your hands before you hit the, you know, punch the buttons on the clock, and then sanitize them after you're done, and they pulled that clock out and replaced it with one 
where you don't have to punch in your number. You just stick your finger on it, and it automatically clocks you in. And you still have the hand sanitizer. They, uh, they've put up barriers in the work areas that they can't. My department, they can't do that, but we don't work side by side in, in each other's faces. So if one of us is, you know, sick, the rest of us are unlikely to be exposed, and we're all wearing face masks, and they've got, uh, in the break room, they've got barriers up on the tables, and they stagger the breaks out so there's not too many people at, on break at one time, and you, they have tables set up outside so people can take breaks out there which is where I'm going when I take my breaks. So, um, well, you know, like I said, initially I was kind of concerned, but now I feel a lot better, especially considering the fact that I've been in uh, you know, retail outlets and they don't have near the precautions that we do. Mm-hmm. Well, it sure does seem that you've got all of the CDC guidelines and guidance being enacted and followed, and I'm grateful for that for anyone that gets to experience that as well. Um, I think that it's a matter of folks just adapting with very little time and very lot (laughs) and a big lot of pressure and cognitive fatigue that I think we're all experiencing while trying to to pivot and swivel so darn quickly. Yeah, yeah, you could very well be right. Okay, well, why don't we hit our first story here? Sure. Um, From MASH.com, the weird reason people are protesting this McDonald's dinosaur statue. Residents of Tucson, Arizona, give directions by it. Parents waiting for their food at the McDonald's on the corner of East Grand Road in East Tanky? I guess that's how it's pronounced. Uh, Take pictures of their kids under it. It's one of the city's most famous landmarks, a realistic life-size statue of Tyrannosaurus Rex. And it has startled drivers and fascinated dinosaur-obsessed children since it went up in 1994. Now, after ruling this corner of Tucson for more than a quarter of a century, the T-Rex is facing possible extinction. And the reason this is is because The group Christians Against Dinosaur are protesting it. And I thought this was a gag, you know, a Poe group. I didn't think it was serious. (laughs) When you say Christians Against Dinosaurs, um, it's sort of like you're pulling things out of an apples to apples hat of, uh, I don't know, uh, ophthalmologists against butterflies or (laughs) 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 like it does read like a gag, but. Nothing will surprise me at this point because we have, quote unquote, museums all around the country that purport that either dinosaurs were dragons and uh, cohabitated on the Earth 5000 years ago with humans. We have, uh, quote unquote, museums, purported museums that think that, oh, the dinosaurs were on Noah's Ark or they didn't make it to Noah's Ark. And that's why we've got fossils, because it, they were exterminated in the flood. Nothing will surprise me at this point when you have folks that are so, so adamantly against the entertaining the idea that the Earth is very, very old and the universe is very, 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 very old <laughs> and that Perhaps the way it is written in your scripture is not to be used as a literal science book or historical atlas. 
or 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 even a a book of good literature because um i mean having read uh, homer uh if i have to pick a religious text that i'm going to read from as literature i'm going to pick homer over the bible because homer is better written there is that. I mean, in, if you're looking at the Bible with a capital B, you really have to look at which part when you're talking about or criticizing its writing, because as many, many scholars and researchers know and can tell through lots of different textual analysis and evidence, the Bible was not written by one person. So there may be very, um, very beautiful, artful passages in the Bible that were written 2000 years later than some other part. That's a list of begats. Yeah, well, and the Pentateuch, they actually have the records that indicate when it was written, and it was written like 500 years, roughly, or so after Moses was supposed to have lived, um, because it was written after the end of the Babylonian captivity, because the Jews had no text like that before the Babylonian captivity. And then after the Babylonian captivity, uh, the high priest at the time ran into the throne room with a text that he quote-unquote just discovered and began reading from it. Well, if you know anything about the evolution of language, you know you can't take a 500-year-old text and just casually read it aloud. <laughs> Especially a language like Hebrew that has no vowels and they didn't even put spaces between the words at that time. So, I mean, Hebrew had no written vowels they, at that time. They just it, wrote the consonants and didn't break the words up. Exactly. As someone who has familiarity with reading at least liturgical Hebrew, um, but very little uh, uh, interface with reading modern Hebrew, some interface with speaking very basic modern Hebrew, the, the vowels are... They're more as like suggested pronunciations and vowels because there are consonant letters that are indicative of a particular vowel sound. But from region to region, they they differ. Um, and I think one, it, what you're what you're reminding me, Tucker, of is when I was in college and still an observant and practicing Jewish individual egalitarian and of the American Reformed Jewish strain, but still practicing and, and interested in that particular heritage, took the college class, uh, uh, Bible as Literature, Hebrew Bible as Literature, and it was led by a professor who identified straight up as Jewish, but had no problem taking us through all of the different evidence of, well, this particular authorship is suggestive of this time period. They refer to God or the deity using Yahweh or the the four letters that were, you know, yud heh vav -Hey. uh, This particular part of the Bible is where we see the divine uh, referenced as Elohim, which is completely different. Why would one particular author use multiple names for what they think of as their God? Why is at one point God, the Hebrew God, just above all other gods, acknowledging that they believed that other gods were in existence, whereas in another part of the Bible, they acknowledge no existence of any other gods or magic or or of other religious sects. And I think that that's, that was really one of those really affirming and eye-opening courses for me to have taken 
in college, followed up by a, a course with a different uh, professor that was called Folklore and the Bible. And it looked at folklore mo- motifs across cultures as overlaid with the Hebrew scriptures and the Christian Bible to say this is just another piece of folklore. And it follows similar motifs from other cultures that are, you know, emergent around the world and reactive to their environments and their challenges and their struggles. And it really helped me see that even in the liberal, progressive, pluralistic society that I was growing up in and immersed in, where we said, the Bible wasn't written by God, but was written by one person and divinely inspired by God. It really put the lie to that test and say, all right, do I really think that there's anything more special about this book than about a tale of an indigenous person of the southwest of the of North America that's talking about coyote versus raven? Is there anything different about this book compared to the Russian tales of Ivan Ivanovich and uh, the big black bears? No. <laughs> uh, okay, now this raises a question that I've had ages ago. I worked for uh, in at what was then Walden Books and later became Borders in their main distribution center, and they had and I don't remember the name of it. And I always wanted to pick up the books, but I never had the money um, because it was they were these big coffee table style books. They weren't that's not what they were aimed at, but they, you know what I'm talking about as far as the the format goes. Yep. Yep. It was an encyclopedic number of books. There were, I don't know how many volumes, but there were a bunch. And they were some kind of uh, Jewish works. And I don't know what they were, but I, because I, I, I remember opening the book and there was like in the center of each page was a square with Hebrew written in it. And then there was like translations and commentary of that Hebrew text surrounding that. And I don't remember what that was. Do you have any idea what that m- series of books might have been? Yeah, it's uh, describing with this really rich imagery what a page of Talmud looks like. And Talmud is sort of the commentary by the learned sages from the, all the rabbinical period of, of Judaism, where you have the scripture text in the squ- in the middle, in that square in the middle, and then all the commentary around it is from the sages and rabbis. Now, what's so cool about this text is that it looks like this collaborative, almost like a wiki document, right, where you can see all the edits and changes and footnotes and things like that. But the crazy thing is, is that one guy who writes his commentary in the upper right-hand corner could be referencing arguing with the guy in the bottom right-hand corner, and they are separated by 800 years, right? And wow. so it's uh, it would be like as if, you know, 50 years from now, uh, I started writing in the first person as if I'm having an argument with the Wikipedia editor of this particular article that was written back in 2020. Um, and so it's it's a neat piece of text, and it is for very Orthodox Jews, one of the things that is sort of the the pinnacle of, of scholarship. Um, and 
it's but well, when when you start studying it and reading it, I mean, there's mystics that say you shouldn't be able to read Talmud until you're at least 40 years old because you don't have the brain capacity to do it. And it'll like, I don't know, magically blow up your brain inside out or something. But of course, you know, that just makes teenagers curious and <laughs> want to look at it. Then. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, that temptation only goes so far once you start reading this really dry <laughs> stuff. But the, the fascinating thing is that it looks in so many ways to be a discussion of how the heck we can loophole our way out of this absurd dictate given by this supposed God. So, for instance, there's like a, 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 a commandment that's, you know, uh, stone the, the um, rebellious child, right? Kill the rebellious child who dishonors his elders or something like that. And... Now, sane, compassionate societies don't want to kill their children, right? Sane, compassionate societies know that eight-year-olds get cranky and sometimes call their mom or dad buttface because they've just learned that <laughs> word. And because they're testing out being, um, you know, having their own agency and things. No one's going to want to kill the eight-year-old that calls their dad a buttface, right? So what do all of these learned sages do? do they argue with each other out of all of the ways like oh well this actually doesn't count because the intent behind this law is that there has to be witnesses at you know morning noon and night oh and also you know 50 years later someone adds mm, the child must actually exhibit you know consciousness and uh the physical possession of the lower beard if you can use your imagination of what lower beard might reference um please do <laughs> and so it's saying you know what we understand that eight-year-olds are gonna have you know uh, a, a, a tantrum here and there we don't want to kill that kid and it's like this way of lawyering your way out of these godly commandments but at this and, and then at the end of the day it's like who do we think we're fooling if we really do believe that there's this all-knowing, all-seeing God who's commanding us to do these things? We're going to try and loophole our way out of his his commandments. You're just literally being rebellious against your own godfather figure, Mr. Hillel or Mr. Shammai or Mr. Rambam, whoever is writing that particular commentary on Talmud. So that's my opinion of of Talmud. <laughs> that my 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 opinion of bad literature, um, of of Bible, I think is transcended by my opinion of ridiculous lawyerly texts of the Talmud. But I, I want to get back to this dinosaur thing because this is blowing my mind. Okay. <laughs> um, I kind of figured that every single kid went through a dinosaur obsession phase, and I have found as I age that that's not always true. Um, seems in the last 15 years or so, kids seem to go more often through a train obsession phase. And maybe that's the pervasiveness of Thomas the Tank Engine, but I definitely went through my dinosaur obsession phase. Did you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and I saw something, and of course, it's one of those things I just flipped past on the interwebs and didn't pay any attention too closely, so who knows how accurate it is, but supposedly uh, kids who go through a dinosaur phase are more intelligent than kids who don't. Huh, interesting. I'd like to see the methodology behind that and what's what metric we're using for intelligence. Um, 
Because, you know, anyone can memorize how to spell a long string of letters. I mean, that was what made my third grade self feel real smart when I could spell out Archaeopteryx or Tyrannosaurus, right? Um, Yeah. But I think some of that innate curiosity about thinking beyond yourselves, thinking to a time when you didn't exist and other creatures did, and then now that you exist, those creatures don't, that represents a level of abstract thought that I do believe takes some intelligence. And these supposed Christians against dinosaurs seem utterly impaired to do or <laughs> utterly defiant against. I mean, it's like, I at some, at some level, I got to respect the folks that are trying to like mash their square peg into a round hole and just say that the dinosaurs were here 5,000 years ago um, because yeah. they, they will acknowledge that there are fossils in the ground that are indicative that these creatures existed. <laughs> But this, like, y- you started out by saying, I-, I think this might be a Poe or a fake or a gag that's, or something yeah, like that. Yeah, and, and, and until I saw this article, that's because I'd seen memes, you know, that were had the watermark Christians against dinosaur, and I always assumed it was a Poe. But, you know, apparently they've gotten people harassing the, the owners of the uh, the McDonald's over the statue. So whether whether this Facebook group Christians Against Dinosaurs actually started out as something serious or as someone joking, you've got real people that have fallen in with this that are harassing the the manager of this particular. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So of all the things to harass a manager about, Karen, must a dinosaur (laughs) be it? Yeah. And I mean, that you know, it's cool. You know, you can argue that it's not really healthy to eat McDonald's, but hey, they've got a cool giant T-Rex statue out there. And apparently when the pandemic started, they actually put a mask over the face of the dinosaur to encourage people to wear masks. Oh, now we're getting to the crux of things. Is this, I, I would imagine that anyone who believes that dinosaurs don't exist might also have some some confluence with a group of folks that don't believe we should be masked. Yeah, yeah. Um, since those people tend to be Republicans <laughs> and uh, believe, you know, watch things like Fox and think it's all fiction, you can ha- have a disagreement about, well, what's the best way to handle a certain situation? Uh, but when, you know, one party's platform is just let them all die. That's not that's not something you can just say. Well, that's your opinion, and you're allowed to have that. You know, we're allowed to disagree on that. It's like no, no, that's not a good opinion. You nobody should have that, regardless of, of you know who they are. It's a real a real head scratcher for me. I'm also looking at this dinosaur thing. I'm sorry because I'm just still loving the the T-Rex and I'm pulling up pictures now of uh T-Rex in a face mask. Not only did they dress up T-Rex in face masks, but uh even before COVID-19, uh, they would dress up T-Rex in all kinds of like holiday swag just as like a fun point for the community right to look at and notice and things like that and i'm seeing in response that someone who is demanding the removal of this dinosaur calls it a conduit of lies and dino porn that are corrupting our children's minds (laughs) 
And that's just, I, I think, man, if someone were to like write a conservapedia article about me posthumously and the byline was Rebecca Friedman, conduit of lies and dino porn, I could ask for nothing better. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that reminds me, I looked up and, and forgive me, I don't remember where I found it, but it was like on Alibaba or AliExpress, one of these Chinese websites. They have uh, life-size dinosaur statues that are pretty dirt cheap. I mean, you know, they're they're thousands of dollars, but it's like for um, maybe thirty thousand dollars, you could have a dinosaur nativity scene made up of life-size dinosaur statues. If oh, you let's do it! That would be amazing. Uh, Oh, I know. I'm sure you've seen that meme where, you know, it's got the, the outline of the nativity scene. It says, it looks, this looks to me like two T-Rexes fighting over a table saw. <laughs> oh, yes. It's, it, this is not the silhouette of Mary and Joseph and the divine child and the uh, star announcing his birth. No, definitely T-Rexes fighting over a table saw. <laughs> yeah. And so. I, I think that's what inspired me to look up to see what it would be. And it was like, it's only $15,000, roughly. I forget, you know, and of course there's other charges, probably. But um, it's not terribly expensive. You just need a lot of real estate because they are life-size. So they're 40 feet high or however long, you know, big the, the actual dinosaurs were. They are life-size, but they are not life-realistic because this T-Rex has... Uh it looks almost like elephant skin, right? And we know that uh, almost uh, almost assuredly that most of those dinosaurs had some kind of uh, soft feathers. So I think that they should dress them up in a, um, I don't know, they need to get like a, a bazillion feathers and stick them all over them. Yeah, uh, well, there's debate about how many feathers the adult T-Rexes would have had. Ah, thank you for bringing that to my attention. Um, th there's not... They're not entirely certain that adult T-Rexes would have been feathered heavily. They figured the young would have been almost certainly because that would have helped them uh, camouflage themselves. Yeah, that's one of those things that until we get enough DNA and are able to sequence it and analyze it, we'll probably never know. I think that one of the most magic things about dinosaurs for me is that when I'm, you know, thinking back to being in grade school in the 80s and my little picture books that talk through all the dinosaur stuff ends of, so what really killed the dinosaurs? We may never know. And, you know, sort of ends on that cryptic cliffhanger. And then throughout the 90s and 2000s, no, we came out with some really good, robust research. This is, no, this was the particular Yucatan uh, collision that that killed off so many of the dinosaurs during this particular period. No, this was the particular icing event that uh, killed off um, so many organisms during this particular time period. And if that can happen during my lifetime, uh, there's just so many more things, so many more discoveries that we can make. And that's, yeah. that's something that's, that's magic to me. Yeah, I, I, I know people who are atheists who were like, Oh, I don't want immortality. It, you know, I, the, the guy described it. He goes, picture a bird, you know, a giant boulder on the beach, and every day a bird comes, flies past it, and hits the boulder with its wing and knocks a little bit off. 
that's what immortality is like, you know, when the boulder's finally gone, that's when you die, and that's billions of years or whatever, and I'm, I, all I can think is, yeah, but imagine all the things that we'll learn and discover during that period of time. Ooh. You know, my earliest memories are literally of Apollo 17. Those are the oldest memories I can put a conclusive date on, or watching the astronauts walk on the moon. I would love to live long enough to see somebody walk on Mars or some other planet. I mean, geez, the, the warp drive, if we ever got something like that figured out, I would love to live that long just because of all the possibilities it opens. I think thinking from a transhumanistic perspective, one of the hopes that I have is I live right next to a major trauma center hospital, right? And especially mm -hmm. being home in the last six months, we hear the helicopters mm, two, three, four, six times a week, you know? And yeah. every time I hear that helicopter, I think, man, I just get these chills because I know that it is possibly the worst day of some family's life, but also possibly the best day of eight other people's lives if it means that somebody's organs and tissues are helping to improve or save lives, right? Yeah. And I am just waiting for the day when I get to be a, a doddering uh, old teacher, you know, former former teacher that's retired, coming back to substitute teach and and talking to kids in a downtime, you know, ignoring whatever teacher's lesson was there and actually just talking to kids because <laughs> that's what the best substitute teachers always do for that period, right? And just yep. saying, I remembered a time when we had to wait for people to die so that someone else could get a kidney or a part of their liver or a lung. And the kids having that be something completely anathema to them because we will have been able to grow our organs or preserve our organs or replace them with uh, with excellently functioning uh, biomechanical devices and they whoa that's so weird miss how does that even work you know and that's yeah. that's sort of one of my things that i believe can happen in my lifetime yeah. well th they already have 3d printed organs mm -hmm. um that they're simple ones like the bladder, but if you know, three <laughs> D printing technology is not much younger than you are, says the guy who was born in the sixties. So, <laughs> <laughs> hey, you only you only got uh, a decade or two on me, so it's okay. It's all good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you're talking about being in grade school in the eighties, and it's like I was I was in high school and graduating then. <laughs> That's what I said a decade or two. <laughs> <laughs> that is um, one of the things that got me the other day. Not the other day, but a, a while back. Um, but I was reminded of it because of this past week's anniversary. Uh, I was having a chat with somebody in an online group, and it's one of those things where you can't tell how old somebody is or anything like that. You don't know, and it seems like a, com a conversation between people who are in peers, right? Mm -hmm. And and then the person mentions being in grade school on nine eleven, and it's like I was in my thirties. <laughs> I feel ancient. <laughs> It is one of those things that uh, does stick with people where we have those memories that are, are really, um, I don't know, that are, that are pointed. And, you know, you said, okay, Apollo 17 is one of the, the earliest memories that you could actually put a date on that's 
something that's you know known to people outside of like your immediate toddler existence or or whatnot. R- and it's right. those those historical moments that sort of stick with us and sort of define what we react to and and how we look at things like that. You know, and I was presenting to our, our 9-11 tribute and memorial to a group of kids. And since at this time, none of our students in grades K through 12 were alive at the time of the uh, 9-11 attacks on the U.S. It's ancient history. Well, yeah, and they ask about it. They ask what it was like. And for me, that was like me asking my teachers of really varying ages you know what was it like when kennedy was shot some were very very little some of my teachers were not born at that time some of my teachers were in college and very very viscerally remembered it um and so to be part of that generation that can tell a story to younger generations of what was it like or even local to to washington state uh there are probably about half our teachers that very much remember what it was like when Mount St. Helens blew. Now, I did not live in Washington State at that time because I didn't live anywhere at that time because I was not living. Um, <laughs> but that's that's a thing that um, our, our elder teachers can talk about. And it's, you know, local to this particular area. It informs that those stories and it informs that mythos and ethos of the particular community. And that's a really interesting and gratifying thing to participate in as a human i think just those sharings of those stories the tellings and retellings the different perspectives about those momentous occasions i think is something that's really special and when we're all looking for some kind of connection because i've been basically cooped up in my house with two cats and one human for six months with very little other contact with other people at anything than a six foot distance, those sharing of stories can be one of those ways to connect. Which reminds me, how far are you from where Galloping Gertie was? Oh, so Galloping Gertie was in Tacoma, Washington, and I sit probably about three miles from the Tacoma Narrows uh, with the current bridge. And uh, we actually have two spans one of which is the span that replaced Galloping Gertie, and then one of which was built directly adjacent to it to allow for multiple, you know, two-way traffic westbound on uh, one bridge and then uh, the return trip on the other bridge. Uh, We can go out to the Narrows. We can watch the sunset from there, not on a day like today because it's terribly smoky. Um, But, uh, yeah. Yeah, I I just happen to be reminded of that because... I have a book called The Timetables of History. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Mm, Tell me about it. It's a big, thick book, and it goes year by year, and it's broken up into categories of, uh, like, history, politics, uh, literature, theater, religion, philosophy, learning, visual arts, music, science, technology, daily life. And it's just a listicle, basically, in each section. But it's handy because... You can look at a particular date, and you can see things that are happening not just in the U.S., but all around the world, and across different fields. So it's not like when you're doing history, you study one civilization, and then when you shift to the n- another civilization, you know, you jump back in time, and it's hard to cross-connect that, oh, okay, well, while the Greeks were doing this, the Chinese were doing that. You know, most people don't know that 
the Chinese were using natural gas for fuel before the Romans had their empire. It is one of those things that definitely puts things into a different perspective when we can see all of these pieces together from a larger, not bird's eye view, but I don't know, maybe a satellite's eye view. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and so in, in the time period I happen to be working on and going through in this book is the 40s. And one of the things it mentioned was, the, you know, Gallup and Gertie, which I'd heard about, but I didn't realize exactly when it was. I thought it was actually a little later in time, like the 50s. And so I was like, oh, that's neat. And Becky's going to be on. So I want to ask her if she, how close she is to that just to see. Yep. Super close. It's certainly on my bucket list to get that far out west. Well, when you make it this far out to the northwest corner of the lower 48, you know that you'll have a friend here with the Ask an Atheist crew. And if you ever make it in this region, I don't know why you'd want to. <laughs> Let me know in advance and I, I can show you around and introduce you to a, the handful of local atheists that I know. Sounds excellent. Whew. Well, this was something. I'm going to have fun um, producing these uh, <laughs> two episodes, and I really thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Um, <laughs> you know, like I said, you guys were one of the first atheist podcasts I listened to, so it's a huge honor for me to have you on. So... Well, thank you. Thank you. All right. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. Good night. You've been listening to the very first crossover episode of Ask an Atheist with Sam Mulvey and Atheist in the Trailer Park. You just heard the first part of a conversation between Becky of Ask an Atheist, that's me, based in Tacoma, Washington, and Tucker, the trailer park atheist, based in Tennessee. For more episodes of Tucker's show, including his take on this very conversation, you can check out at Trailer Park Atheist on Facebook and Twitter, or search for Atheist in the Trailer Park wherever you get your podcasts. Our next episode of Ask an Atheist with Sam Mulvey will hopefully feature the second part of Mayan Tucker's conversation with possibly a special guest, Sam Mulvey himself. Okay, definitely featuring <laughs> a special guest, Sam Mulvey himself. So definitely stay tuned for that. To get in touch with the crew of Ask an Atheist with Sam Mulvey, call toll-free nationwide 844-SKEPTIC. That's 844 844- 753-7842 email us questions at atheist.radio you can listen to a decade worth of Ask an Atheist episodes online at atheist.radio and you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Ask an Atheist WA our music is by Chris Coleman and Phil Whitfield my name is Becky Friedman and I was pleased to produce today's episode talk to you later